Hello and welcome to Open Minds Radio. This is Alejandro Rojas. Thank you so much for joining the show today. This is actually an edited version of the show that we aired live, and I've edited out the news because we had a few glitches there, and unfortunately it didn't come across too well. Uh, but we are going to be trying some new stuff where we're going to be doing the shows remotely uh, because we're movers and shakers and and Jason and I are not always in the same place at once. So uh, it's going to be exciting and different. And hopefully, for those of you who listen to the show on the podcast, you won't notice much of a difference. But uh, the YouTubes will be a little different since we'll be on the little computer screens there as opposed to uh, the nice cameras in the studio. But our shows are still going to be as wonderful and uh, great as usual. Another couple new things I wanted to tell you about, because I know last time I told you there'd be some new exciting things coming up, and they are. So many of you uh, subscribe to my podcast, my Paranormal Reporter podcast. It's Paranormal RPTR, and I update that with the headlines on all of the areas of the paranormal on a regular basis so you guys can get stay up to speed on what's going on there. However, since some of you are just into UFOs and would rather focus just on that subject, I've also created one that's solely for UFOs where I put headlines up there all the time from the conventional media to show, you know, what kind of impact that UFOs have on culture, how many sightings are getting reported out reported out there, and some of the credible stuff or or otherwise that's being reported by the media. That's UFO Daily News, so you can find that at at UFO Daily News. So it's all one word if you go search it, or two words if you go search it on Twitter.com. Now, if you don't want to be on Twitter, that's fine too. You'll also find these at UFODailyNews.com. So it's fun and exciting. I hope you like it. Otherwise, the news that Jason went over you can find at openminds.tv, and I hope you enjoy this great interview with Peter Robbins, where he gives us uh, a unique insight into the life of of alien abduction researcher Bud Hopkins, about how he and Peter uh, met, and also about how Bud Hopkins got involved with all of this, and, you know, made such a big impact on... uh, really society by bringing the alien abduction phenomena to the forefront. Now everybody knows what it is. So I hope you enjoy the show and uh, this great interview with Peter. Thanks for joining us. How did your relationship with Bud started? Okay. Well, um, that requires uh, a little bit of backstory to tell you how Bud and I first met. In um, 1975, my life was all about being a young painter in New York City. Um, it was all I ever wanted to do was be an artist. And I had now graduated from the School of Visual Arts and was on their faculty as a painting instructor. I had a, a, a little loft down in Chinatown. My work was starting to sell a little bit. Uh, my sister Helen was a, a poet and uh, soon to be a singer-songwriter, and she lived about a mile north of me in New York's East Village, and life was good, and one afternoon, um, I was going over a bunch of old drawings that I had done when I was a kid, and maybe that was part of the reason I hadn't been sleeping well, uh, it was Chinese New Year had just passed, and 72 hours of fireworks going on, you sound, 
sounded like I was in a war zone. But something triggered inside of me, and a memory returned from childhood. Um, I should say I grew up um, in a little community about 30 miles east of New York City on Long Island, a lovely village. had a pretty idyllic childhood, I think. No major traumas, um, and certainly no repressed memories that I was aware of, but I had one. And what it was, was of a, a UFO sighting that my sister Helen and I had had when we were kids. Um, I was 14, as best as I can recall, and Helen was just 12, and we were playing on the front lawn of the house we grew up in. And it was an absolutely beautiful late afternoon in late spring or early summer, and not a cloud in the sky, Alejandro, and something caught my attention in the sky, and I looked up, and I watched in complete and utter amazement as five silvery-white disc-shaped objects uh, flying in quite a precise V-type formation that you know we'd associate with like fighter planes or something on display, came without a sound um, from my right peripheral vision and stopped over the neighbor's house in that same formation. And I immediately said either uh, look or Helen look and we looked up and there they were as still as if they were painted on the sky. Mm -hmm. um, I was a good kid. I, I was a bad liar. Um, I, you know, collected rocks and bugs and stamps and it was kind of nerdy. I wasn't into sports. I drew and painted and cooked. And I I had watched my share of, you know, B science fiction movies at our local fantasy theater um, where I had some of my great movie memories. And, I, you know, I, I knew about flying saucers as much as any kid. But also somehow um, I understood the implied message of the adult world that they were not real. They were science fiction. But these were round, and I can't tell you exactly how large they were, but, you know, if they were the size of small private planes, maybe they were a 1,000 feet up. If they were like airliners, maybe they were several thousand feet up. But Helen and I both agreed that we could see regular detailing around each one that we could only read like windows. And we were transfixed, and we looked, and we looked, and we looked, and it went on forever, several minutes in any case. You and I have certainly collected our share of accounts of people who have had sightings, and in the countless hundreds I've done, many people describe what I would now call the checklist phenomena. You look up, and there is something or things that you have never seen anything like, and your mind immediately rattles off stuff that they're not. They're not planes, helicopters, kites, blimps, balloons, clouds, reflections from the ground, floating debris, and then you're stuck. And... I I was absolutely at the most extraordinary moment of my young life. I could not believe what I was seeing, yet there it was. We didn't say a word. Helen was standing about six feet to my left, and at a certain point, I had had it. Some people would say, well, don't tell me you didn't, you stopped looking, because this is the most amazing thing you've ever seen, and, you know, it might not, it might go away in a second. Well, that was just the case. I went to run into the house to tell our mom. And within moments, um, I felt like I was running through molasses. Uh, what had happened within seconds was so shocking to me 
and so fascinating, and not scary at all, I should say, uh, unlike these things in the sky which gave me a great deal of anxiety. Uh, I, I was falling, but in very slow motion. I realize now I had kind of lost motor coordination. And in my last conscious moments, I, I thought several things that seemed as anomalous as the things that I was running away from, namely, what a beautiful afternoon it was and how pretty my mom's um, garden looked. And as I was falling toward our sidewalk, um, you know, there were the ants in the sidewalk doing their thing, and bang, I was unconscious. Some time passed. I, I had wanted to think that it was a minute or two, but I now realize it was considerably longer. And when I woke, um, they were gone, my sister was gone, and uh, I had scraped my right elbow pretty bad, um, but, you know, was impressed that I'd have a great scab like a 14-year-old might think, and went into the house and intuitively went upstairs, and I saw my sister in her room looking out the window at our backyard. I didn't want to disturb her. And I went into the kitchen. I told my mom what we had seen. And I think I said word for word, Mom, Helen and I just saw some things in the sky that looked like flying saucers from the movies. And my mom, um, God rest her, um, she did something very smart and very sensitive um, without realizing it, I think. She just looked at me and appraised me um, seriously, and she said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. That's what they look like. And she just nodded and went back to cooking, but seemed very thoughtful to me. Next thing I knew, I was taking my bicycle uh, to town to get out some books from our local library, which I hated both of them. One of them was Flying Saucers at Land, and I wanted something that was going to tell me they were completely understandable. That afternoon, Helen asked me if I wanted to talk about what we had seen, and I said no. I wasn't stupid. I knew that if I mentioned this to my pals at junior high school, I'd be laughing stock. You know, no girl would ever want to have me touch her. I'd never have any cool clothes. I'd be a pariah and a, you know, an outcast. And you are. <laughs> Just kidding. I love you, brother. That's great. Uh, Actually, yeah, well. you got uh, you got great clothes. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I can only tell you that over the next weeks, I worked very hard to kind of repeat that mantra that I think a lot of people do, which is, it couldn't be, therefore it wasn't, therefore it must have been something else. And my mm -hmm. life started to go on, and I found my kind of social bearings and got into music and art at a deeper level and ultimately did have girlfriends and all that great stuff, and I completely forgot about it. And almost 15 years passed, and that afternoon it exploded. And I have to tell you, when the memory came back, I couldn't shut it off. It was like playing through my head like a tape loop. And I thought I must be going crazy because my logical mind said, how could I have ever, ever forgotten this? And I, I really had, you know, kind of broke down a bit. And finally sort of got myself together, washed my face, had a cup of tea, and thought, what should I do? thought there's only one thing to do, which is to call my sister. However, in thinking it out, I thought, if I tell her what I've remembered, she'll say yes or no, and I need more. I need her to say it. And so I called her and asked her if it was a good time to talk and essentially said, I've remembered something that happened to us when we were kids. I need to know what you remember, but I'm afraid if I just tell you, you know, you'll say yes or no, etc., so let me set the scene, and I began to talk about that morning and what the weather was like and where we were standing on the front lawn, 
and she stopped me mid-sentence, kind of with a rush of laughter, and said, stop, I know what you're talking about, and then described to me what we had seen. Well, I had a reaction I can only describe as one of the great split moments of my life. One part of me was going, oh, my God, they're real. And the other part of me was going, oh, my God, they're real. And then she said something I will never forget. And she said, there's more, and you're not going to like it. I said, well, what? She said, well, I remember you literally peeling off from my right peripheral vision, and I assumed you were running to house to tell Mom. But then within a second or two, a beam of blue light shot out of one of these things. And the first thing that struck me was, it's a beautiful, clear day. How can I be seeing a beam of light? You know what I mean? right down to the ground. It's not like, you know, it's just rained and you shine a flashlight and it's catching on every, you know, molecule of, of, of uh, moisture in the air. And I turned around and I saw you in the light. And the light went out and then you dropped. And then I lifted off. And I remember my hair blowing in the wind and the bottom of one of these things was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And at that point, my mind just kind of cut out, and my first thought was, my God, my sister's crazy. And then I caught myself, and I said, wait. But three seconds ago, she wasn't crazy when five discs with windows on them were hanging over the Parker's house. Well, we got together the next day. I had already done a bunch of drawings, and my to say my life changed overnight is an understatement. My life changed in a moment and has never gotten back on the same track. And Helen went on to a very distinguished career, in uh, the music industry and golden platinum record award winner and wonderful singer songwriter and performer and i was completely immersed in ufos i played at being an artist for years ultimately went into uh, theater management and then on to become an investigative writer but about a year passed and one afternoon i picked up a copy of uh, a famous new york weekly the village voice and there was an article on a major UFO incident that had taken place the year before in New Jersey. Well, I had already started to collect UFO books and picked up the odd magazine, and I realized that there were a core of, you know, scientific kind of writers and a whole bunch of New Age goofballs and Welcome to Space Brothers and contactees. I had no interest in meeting any of these people, but this author I wanted to meet. The article was sensational. It was beautifully written, it was analytical, it was objective, it was well-researched, and the author was a guy named Bud Hopkins. Now, remember, I'm a painter in New York City, and um, it's a world mm. where many of us know each other's names, and I thought, I know there's a painter named Bud Hopkins, but chances are it's not him. I looked in the New York phone book, there's only one Bud Hopkins, and I just cold called him, and I introduced myself and told him why I was calling. We chatted a bit, and they invited me over for coffee. And that was in early 1976. And we became friends, mostly um, bonded by um, our love of art and our fascination with this very improbable topic. Now, this is five years before he published his first book, Missing Time. And I knew he was mm -hmm. getting involved in this wildest area of research. And overnight, in 1981, he became Bud Hopkins, the Bud Hopkins that many of your listeners are familiar with. And his life changed very dramatically as well. From then on, 
our friendship deepened and because we already had a great bond of trust and certainly other things in common, he was starting to get a lot of mail, more than he could handle, and he invited me to begin to help him with the mail. And as um, he realized that I was more and more in tune with this, he gave me more responsibilities. Um, He began to study hypnosis, and for the first seven years that he did regressive hypnosis, many people don't know this, he worked under the very careful supervision of a very highly regarded hypnotherapist named Dr. Aphrodite Clamar. Uh, Bud did not come to this in any kind of cavalier way. He did it in the most methodical, scholarly, sensitive way. I was very, very impressed with the way he dealt with the people because that's what meant the most to me. Uh, We were both humanists. We both really cared about what these people were going through. And for me, I had grown up with an abductee in the family. And Helen and I had already put together parts of her history um, from her memories. She was doing drawings now of, you know, her abduction experiences. And she worked with Bud on and off for several years, um, hypnotic regression, a member of one of his earliest support groups. And that is how we met and began to work together. Mm-hmm. Now, you spent lots of time with Bud. I'm sure you talked a lot about um, his history. How did he get interested in the phenomena? Yes. Um, he discusses this at length better than I ever could, although I will, um, in his very last book, which is one that should be on the shelves of anybody who is serious about the subject of UFOs. And almost more interestingly, anybody who is interested in a very unique 20th century American life. It's a memoir appropriately titled Art, Life, and UFOs. And it's it's as fine a memoir as I've ever written. Bud's interest was not sparked. Remember, he was born in 1931. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, he died in August, so he was 80 years old just. Um, when the whole thing kicked in, in in 47, he was already a teenager, but he was had his eyes completely set on being an artist, and this was something that he ignored, as I did. It wasn't until, I believe, the mid-60s, and I would have to look it up. It's either that he was driving with his wife or walking on the beach, but he saw it was kind of a, um, a gray day, as is often the case in Cape Cod, where he had his second home and uh, spent many of his happiest times over the last 50 years of his life, that he saw a single disc tracking along the sky and followed it with his eyes. And he does um, there's a wonderful drawing in the book of just what he saw. And, of course, it's uh, as good a drawing as you've seen of something like that. And it, it just it was something he never forgot, but he sort of filed it. Now, where he really got involved was in 1975, the year I got involved. Mm-hmm. Bud was a scotch drinker, and he drank Cuddy Sark. <laughs> and um, we had many Cuddy Sarks together. And there was a local liquor store. If anybody that's listening who knows New York, Bud lived on West 16th Street, just east of um, 8th Avenue. And there was a, a liquor store on the block run by a man named George Obarski. George was a kind of cantankerous character. I met him once, and um, World War II veteran, 
um, Catholic, religious, teetotaler, didn't drink, so it was kind of a joke that he owned a liquor store. And one day Bud went in to pick up a bottle, and George was noticeably withdrawn. They would always chat a bit, and he was affable. Hmm. Um, and Bud asked him what was wrong, and he wouldn't say, and Bud liked the guy, and he pushed him. And he essentially said, Bud, you'd never believe me. I wouldn't believe myself. And he went on to tell Bud a story that I believe ultimately was the one that MUFON um, rated as the best or as good as any for that year, and the one, of course, that the article that I read was based on. George had been doing mm-hmm. inventory uh, late that night and was um, where, there till about 2. Um, he lived in Jersey and was driving home along the Jersey Coast Road on the Hudson River. And I guess if you drew a line from Manhattan over, it was probably in the 80s when his radio started to go on the fritz. It was middle of the night. There were no other cars on the road. Bang the radio a few times, and he sees a light coming up behind him. And as the light gets closer, the static gets worse, and it passes over the car by a very small amount of space, and the static got at its worst. And then it veered off to the left and landed out in a field near a new housing development, ironically, a round apartment complex named Stonehenge Towers, I believe. You can't mm-hmm. make this stuff up. Well, you can, but... And George slowed down, and he watched in complete shock as the thing came down without a sound, and as it was coming down, what we can only describe as some kind of landing apparatus came out of it, and it settled on the ground. And then some kind of entryway, gangplank, ladder, uh, whatever you want to call it, came down. And a number of small beings came down, and he watched as they collected soil and then went back up and then the thing rose, the gear retracted and it took off. Well, George arrived home in complete and total shock. He told Bud, told me, that he basically got in bed and prayed like he had not prayed uh, in years, pulled the covers over his head. He's a widower. He lived with his grown-up son who worked a night shift and his son came home about dawn. His father was in a terrible state. He told him what he had observed. And the son said, Dad, I've got to go check this out for myself, and went back and walked into the field that morning and found the impressions in the soil. Well, that afternoon may have been the great turning point in our friend Bud Hopkins' life. Like me, he became quite obsessed with the subject, investigated this case with the skill of a born detective, He interviewed people who lived in the apartment, who worked in the apartment. He found other witnesses. In fact, uh, one of the most compelling memories I have was that the man who had been the night um, doorman that night had observed the lights in the field, and he thought at first they were cars, you know, teenagers parking or something, but they weren't. And he was very disturbed by it, and he lifted the house phone to call a New York City detective police detective who lived in the building to tell him because he knew he was home even though it was the middle of the night he decided to do it and as he went to talk to him the entire plate glass window in front of him shattered wow when the police investigated this there was not it wasn't like a bullet was shot they don't know how it shattered or why it shattered there was no entry but it shattered and that was how bud got involved it's incredible that uh, he's an artist, 
but he really found this other skill. And was it through this UFO setting that he was so good at the reporting and at the getting the interviews and the writing? Because even though that's his first case he wrote about, yes. a lot of people reference it as such a great piece of work. Yes. Um, I, I, I talked to him about this, and one of the things we both agreed was that as children, as young boys, we had set our sights on this goal of being painters, and nothing mm -hmm. was going to stop us. He went to Oberlin, uh, graduated with his uh, uh, BFA, as I did from the School of Visual Arts where I was teaching, and he had written, but it had been art criticism and wonderful articles about Impressionists or uh, Brancusi. Um, in fact, we, we reference one of them in the uh, remembrance that we have out in the new issue of Open Minds. So he was already adept at expressing himself in words. Also, um, when you are trained to make pictures... In, um, as a writer, I never took a, a course in writing, but I, I learned most of it from... I just started making pictures with words rather than the mm. medium that I'd been trained to work in. His natural sense of caring about people was, you know, maybe some... I'm reading a little Freudian stuff into this, but his mm -hmm. father um, um, had issues, uh, as a lot of guys of his generations did, with certain minorities and things... And Bud was very reactive to that and very inclusive in his place, uh, the way that he saw people in the world. Uh, loved being a New Yorker. I mean, it is the greatest city, and uh, it's just the most wonderful place to see the great play of humanity, of people from every corner of the world. And um, he was just very expressive. He had all the natural tools. In other words, he had kind of spent years before thinking and living out of the box and here was the most abiding mystery imaginable the thing that really separated us as far as this goes is that he never stopped painting and it stayed the central passion in that other part of his life where at a certain point i just couldn't do it anymore i felt like i was faking it um i never mm. really put down the camera and i'm um very proud of my work as a photographer although i've not you know, um, showed it, but I, I've taken pictures seriously for 40 years. Um, and for me, it was wonderful when he could grab some time to paint because it was like me cooking. I love to cook, and it's for me, uh, obviously, it's practical, but it's a form of self-expression. It's an unwinding kind of thing. It's fun. It's an adventure, and you get to share it with friends in a very visceral kind of way. Um so that was an anchor for him in a world that meant the world to him. However, I can tell you, um, the art world, especially as represented by the quote-unquote New York City art world, is an unforgiving mistress. And after a fashion, when people in the art world got wind of the fact that Bud Hopkins, the painter, was now some kind of well-known personage in the world of, well, flying saucers, I, I think a lot of them started to look at him with more disdain, and it made me angry, because he was a wonderful painter, and anybody that's ever seen his work knows that, a very serious painter as well. And he his career as a painter in terms of um, sales, I think, suffered as a result. Uh, he has work in the Museum of Modern Art and the Metropolitan Museum and collections and museums all over the world. A lot of people don't know that. 
but uh, especially in our field. But he really did live in those two worlds and was fortunate enough to have this wonderful old building in lower Manhattan with a huge studio in it that was also our office. And then in 1989, when he chartered um, our nonprofit organization, Intruders Foundation, which was uh, created to assist people who had been through these experiences to study it, to try to educate others about it, and to become a repository of information on the subject. Um, that's when you know his profile changed a little bit, but that became our headquarters for the Intruders Foundation and support group meetings as well over the years. Now, from the the Stonehenge case, I think he moved quickly into abduction research, yeah. right? And how did that happen? Well, um, I'm trying to remember. He again, I, I would have to refer people to Missing Time, his first book, or um, Art, Life, and UFOs. And I'm not here to try to sell Bud's books. In fact, I think um, for anybody that's interested in building an actual physical library, and we should all be doing that. The internet's wonderful, but uh, nothing replaces a real library. You can find these books online, except for the newest book, um, used for a couple of dollars. So that's where you should spend your money. But at some point, he became uh, very interested in the Betty and Barney Hill case. Now, if you lived when that case broke in the 60s, even if you had no interest in UFOs, <clears throat> Betty and Barney Hill became world famous in 1965, even though the case broke and happened in 61. And, you you know, they were uh, the subject of countless articles and I think um, a special issue of Life or Look magazine or what have you. And for him, the impact on human beings of this kind of contact superseded any interest in studying lights in the night sky or the configuration or uh, maneuvers of so-called, you know, unknown aerial objects. He's not, he wasn't stupid, though. He realized that it was a subject that was fraught with ridicule. And it's one of the reasons why separate from my friendship and the fact that I just love the guy as a, a really, really good man. He was tremendously courageous. I don't think more than a handful of us can really appreciate what it must be like to be the person who is pioneering not just a truly new area of study, scientific study, but one because of the way that we Americans and the West in general have been so brilliantly conditioned from the summer of 1947 on, our media and our government and every social force has pounded into our heads overall that this is nonsense. And don't you think it's interesting that of all of the subjects out there, if one is to say, I saw something in the sky that was... I couldn't identify that there is a social conditioning where many people will look at you and they will think you're crazy or you want to feel special or you're lonely or you want to write a book or you want to be on the Oprah show or, 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 rather than, <laughs> okay, you saw something in the night sky or, or the sky that you couldn't identify. Isn't that interesting? I wonder what it was too. So he knew he was getting into... Um, a lonely place to start with. And for some years, it was really him on his own. And I'll tell you what, Alejandro, 
I never had a day there over the many years that I worked with him, almost all of it on a volunteer basis for about a year. Uh, we actually had a little money uh, from a grant to Intruders Foundation, and I made the princely sum of $8 an hour for the same work that I was doing <laughs> for free and then went back to doing for free for the rest of my life. Um, but I'll tell you what, there was never a day there where I didn't appreciate that I was working with a man who was a great man, not just a great guy, and that history would remember him, and that I was, you know, a bug on the wall, and seeing this happening and taking shape, I also had the honor of being a, a proofreader, and when Bud was working on a book or an article, I would often be the first one, and it was, in a very funny way as a writer, infuriating. Bud was the very best first draft writer I have ever known in my life. Now, granted, I've not seen a lot of everybody's first drafts, but it used to drive me nuts. I had, If I could find a colon that should have been a semicolon in a five-page article, I would rejoice and, you know, mockingly give him hell for, you know, screwing up the thing, and he would play along, and we would, you know, just have this great fun exchange. But he was a brilliantly... Um, uh, he wrote classical prose. He wrote from the heart, but informed by the mind. And so many of us, you know, when we start to write, we're concerned about what's my style going to be, or um, how <laughs> should I use a bigger word here, when if you keep out of your damn way, you learn that the greatest thing you can do is express yourself in as clean and as accurate and as thoughtful a way as possible. And for him, it was intuitive. And I know for a fact, because again, I read the first drafts, that so much of his books, and he wrote four books and co-wrote a fifth book, it was the original draft with the, some of the most minor kind of sanding at the edges, where for me, on Left at East Gate, Larry Warren and I worked for nine years on that book. So there were times I'd go back into... Um, some area of text and revise something I had written five or six years before and was still polishing it, you know, at almost a decade's point when we sold it and got it published. This is not, what Bud did was not the norm. He was tremendously gifted in a number of areas and writing was certainly one of them. I could tell when I first met him, I kind of had this preconceived notion <laughs> because he had strong opinions Ooh, yeah. that he was kind of a grouch. But when I met when I met him, I immediately fell in love with the guy. He was so nice. He was so charismatic. He had this big, bright smile that yes. lights up the room, and I immediately <laughs> fell in love with him. Yeah. Um, he seemed to be, like you said, a special person. He had these special qualities. And did other people react that way? Well, overall, absolutely. Um, he did not... How can I say? He was certainly diplomatic and understood the politics of life and of ufology and the politics of politics. And he never, ever, that I observed, went out of his way to hurt anybody's feelings, even if he thought they were a jerk. However, he loved people, and he loved being around people. And like the best people in the field, and maybe you know, you can tell me your observation on this, he had a world-class sense of humor. He'd have me laughing so hard at times. 
In fact, he did imitations, uh, uh, impressions of certain well-known people in ufology, as some of us are wont to do. I won't even name their names, but I'd be in tears. I'd be laughing so hard because he had them nailed, uh, even to the cadence as well as the words they would use or what have you. And uh, he, he, we were both big fans of, um, I think, the finest general audience radio show still playing, a wonderful show on National Public Radio called A Prairie Home Companion. Uh, it's Garrison Keillor's show, and he's the closest thing we have to a Mark Twain these days. And we would listen to that show uh, regularly, and once a year, Garrison Keillor would have a special show, which he still does, and he's going to be retiring soon for fans. Uh, we're all lamenting it. Um, where it was two hours of jokes. And we would either never miss that, or if he was going to miss it, I would make like an audio cassette of it, having my recorder set up in front of my radio in that high-tech analog manner that we used to do, and I sometimes still do. Um, but a sense of humor can save your life in this work. Let's face it, serious investigation of the UFO abduction phenomena is chilling. Um, it is the darkest, most um, unnerving aspect of mm. everything that comes under the heading of UFO studies. And I will tell you for a fact, I mean, again, for me, it's personal. And one of the reasons that I am still in the work is it's a way to honor my sister's memory. We lost her in 2000, and she was tremendously courageous and very outspoken about this up until a few days before she died. Um, mm -hmm. She would get in anybody's face about this. And um, she and I and Bud, um, oh gosh, I think in 1987 we were guests on the Geraldo show. And... Um, uh, Bud handled himself absolutely brilliantly, and Geraldo got a little bit silly, uh, and with great dignity. Um, it He really had that gift, and when we learned how ill he was last year, he had had kidney cancer 25 years ago, lost a kidney, then, you know, the countdown of one, five, ten years cancer-free, and we figure he's done with it. And then, I guess about eight or nine years ago, I don't remember, we were going back after a lunch break to a whole life expo um, that was being held at the uh, the Pennsylvania Hotel, I think, um, in um, the West 30s. And I could take you to within two feet of where we were standing waiting for a light to change when he told me, my cancer's back, I have leukemia, but I'm told it's really slow, but I don't know if I want to do anything to you know, chemo or anything, he ultimately did, and it helped him. But my heart sank, and I had like eight years to prepare, but last year we learned that he had stage uh, four liver cancer, and that is, even if you've got a great attitude and every homeopathic, naturopathic, and people praying and loving you, um, the chances are very good you're not going to be here that much longer. And he told me two things with a straight face. He said, um, number one, I really want to um, see my 80th birthday. And that came true on June 15th of this year. He was 80, and we had a, a lovely, low-key party with 15 or 20 friends about two hours until he got tired. We had champagne and cake, and he spoke, and we hung out, and it was a lovely evening. His second wish, again with a very straight face, was I want to live, outlive Dick Cheney. 
and I completely cracked up <laughs> knowing how much he adored our former vice president. And uh, I, that wish did not come true, and I guess I should leave it at that. <laughs> but his his sense of humor did not fail him, and um, he was pragmatic above all else. He knew he was living and had lived a remarkable life, and was um, not focused on what comes next, uh, but just so pleased that his wonderful daughter uh, had become a, a marvelous woman, and he had a beautiful granddaughter and uh, a very special relationship with Leslie Kane, and this marvelous circle of friends and thousands of people around the world who, to whom he meant so much because of how much he gave them of his time. I, I think I mentioned it in the article, In Open Minds, I've written another piece that's published someplace else, that in all the years he did this, and I know um, he worked very formally with at least 700 people, and I logged in hundreds of tapes of interviews and hypnotic regressions, quite a number of which I witnessed, and that was a whole other story. Um, but he, how can I say, um, the reality of what the people were going through was the thing that concerned him most. And literally, well, the overwhelming majority of people that came to him had not had a good time, to put it mildly. They were traumatized. They were frightened. They were upset. Um, some thought they were going crazy. Others wished they were going crazy. I'll never forget how upset Linda Cortile, um, who is the subject, of course, mm -hmm. of the remarkable uh, witnessed uh, this true story of the Brooklyn Bridge UFO abductions was after months of Bud investigating her case and finding the first group of other witnesses. And there were even other witnesses that aren't published who gave accounts but chose not to be included in the book. When Bud laid this out for her, she just broke down. She just hoped that he would tell her that she was crazy and that there was some doctor or treatment or drug that she could take to have this go away. Of course, that was not the case. He gave so much to so many people, and it cost him in his personal and private life, I will tell you that. And mm -hmm. um, that is the way it is with many great men and women who are willing to sacrifice what we'll laughingly call right. a normal life. And he loved his life as an artist, and um, I know quietly... He was hurt that other people in the art world thought less of him as an artist for having this other life. And at the same time, he would not give it up. Uh, he did right. both, and more power to him. Now, it's funny you mentioned the Perry uh, Companion joke show, because I, I caught it a couple weeks ago. <laughs> um, very funny. It's brilliant. But um, I, I, I can see... It would seem that he had a love for people, yes. which drove his passion in this field. And also, he seemed to have a bit of a rebellious streak, too, that kind of drove him in this field. Is that true? I, I, would, say unca I would say categorically. Uh, he was a complete independent thinker. He was proud to be a New York intellectual. He was one of the most well-read people I knew in terms of 20th and 19th century literature. His books in that house numbered 
into the thousands, and they covered so many subjects besides art and UFOs. He was particularly well-studied in 20th century history. Um, he was an avid museum-goer, and one of his conditions over the years that um, I have made one of mine whenever I travel is if I'm in a new city and there's a museum I haven't visited and it's humanly possible to work that into my lecture schedule, get me there. And I, I remember um, um, joking, uh, Nick Pope joking with me years ago when Bud um, had visited London and, and stayed with Nick, as quite a number of us did at the time, and Nick to, took him to the National Gallery, and you know Nick has a great sense of humor too. And he was saying, um, and I know Nick would appreciate my saying this because it was with great affection and, and um, um, a uh, having fun at his own expense to a degree, but just going on about how much Bud had learned about him uh, from him about art as he told him things as they were walking through the museum when, of course, it was exactly the opposite. And that's another thing. You can speak to conference organizers and people around the world who brought Bud to a part of the United States or another country who had the added benefit of going to a museum with him that maybe they had been to many times or not at all and having him educate them to nuances and aspects of the art that they were seeing that they otherwise would have never known. Um, when he was a young, struggling painter in New York, he had one of the great kind of romantic jobs that a young artist would want to have, which was being a, um, a guard at the Museum of Modern Art, and sometimes uh, a night guard. And um, he always had his pass to the museum, and we would constantly talk about what was there or at the Metropolitan, and if there was a particularly good show he had seen, uh, he would send me to it. And if it was at the Modern, he would give me his pass, because it's, it's rather expensive to get in there now. And I said, but Bud, what happens if they ask me, you know, for identification? I don't look anything like you or anything. He said, don't worry, they never do. I never <laughs> did. So um, it was, again, another thread that added richness. But there was a lot of anxiety. There was a fair amount of loneliness. You are sitting in the damned middle of the most explosive subject in the history of humanity, as far as many of us are concerned, with a bloody few colleagues or people that you can really confide in. And um, there were dark nights, for sure. Um, my sister um, and Bud hit it off amazingly well. They were both outsiders. Uh, Helen, um, in her own way, was... Uh, the definition of rebellion. She was one of the true pioneer female um, um, artists in what we now call punk music. And uh, the legendary CBGBs was a second home to us over the years, and she performed there more times than I can imagine. And Bud's musical tastes, although very refined, stopped at about 1961. Um <laughs> He liked the fact that my parents had instilled in me a love of the big bands of the 30s and 40s and occasionally used to test me on singers or, you know, uh, certain band leaders and was usually pretty satisfied. He did not like the fact that I did not think that his favorite big band singer, Vaughn Monroe, was the best big band singer, and that was something that we disagreed on up until <laughs> the moment that he left this earth. But Helen and him hit it off like crazy, and... Uh, she got so much from working with him in terms of uh, well, doing the 
hypnotic regression work and making her peace to a degree with some of the things that had happened to her and some of the wonderful support group meetings. And after a while, there were so many people that we broke them into different areas, and Helen, for a while, was a member of one just for women, which was brilliant, but never, ever pretended to be a therapist. And um, when people would kind of accuse him of that, he would get very rankled. But anybody that understands the dynamics of a support group knows that there is a de facto kind of therapy that comes from being with people who have had similar experiences and you're getting through it and trying to be there for each other and normalize this and go on with your lives. And one of the only two times that I ever saw Bud come to tears was after my sister had died. Um, It was terribly difficult for him um, more than most of the people that he had worked with, perhaps because of our years together, but they had a, a special bond that not only meant the world to me, Alejandro, but to my mother and father and my other sister as well. We all loved him. And my dad and him spent one remarkable day together, and I'll, I'll never forget that either. And my dad has, uh, is 91 now and fascinated by the subject, has read hmm. his books, and still is waiting to see a UFO and not very happy that he hasn't yet, I'll tell you that. Yeah, a lot of people are. <laughs> so, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but this yeah. is just a fascinating insight into his life, which is so special because uh, now that he's gone. But maybe if you could talk about his legacy, because when I yes. reflect upon his legacy, it's humongous. Yes, it is. Well, he is the pioneer researcher in what will be seen in the future if we don't blow ourselves to hell as a species, which is always a possibility in the world of men as opposed to mankind, um, he will be seen for what we know him to be, a true, courageous pioneer who struck out, you know, into the dark without really a lamp to light the way. And with his common sense, his sensitivity, his natural abilities um, in working with people, in um, doing detective work on a level that any any uh, major big city police department would love to have somebody like that, the fact that he was incredibly curious and uh, incredibly courageous. His legacy, for starters, um, is the fact that these five books and probably the hundreds of articles, editorials, conference papers, monographs, commentaries that he wrote. Uh, And over the next years, um, my colleagues and I in the Intruders Foundation will get more and more of these posted uh, on our website and try to get them, you know, out to the world more. These books, I think, will stand to a great degree as some of the most important texts in this field of study and the pioneering texts um, that really um, um, form a body of work that is the core of what we would call abduction studies. Then again, he has, in terms of a legacy, um, a, a wonderful daughter and granddaughter, and that granddaughter will go on, hopefully, to you know uh, continue that bloodline, and um, quite a, a family it is. But... Then there's something really remarkable that very few of us will be able to point back to in the afterlife and say, I had that too, which is thousands of people around the world who revere your memory, either because 
they you help them at some point or another directly or indirectly and he would often just stop what he was doing and I'm, you might have seen it at the odd conference as I did somebody would come up to him and you'd look at their face I would and you'd have a, a sense of what it was about and they'd just go off and they'd talk or if it was a compelling enough case he would go to another part of the country at his own expense and visit them I should also say as part of his legacy in the hundreds and hundreds of cases, formally or possibly, you know, the thousands informally, he never asked a single individual for a single penny. And I mm. took a exception to this at a certain point, more than just about anybody. I saw how hard he worked. And this was time taken away from his life as a professional painter, which was how he made his living. People think because he was famous, you know, money wasn't a problem. Well, think just the opposite. It was always an issue, and sometimes a very dire issue, and one that dogged him to the end, and it's infuriating that that's the way the world is, but it is. And I, I called him on it and said, why don't you ask people? You're a professional, you know. You, And he said several reasons. Number one, I am concerned that if I did and they couldn't afford it, it would be humiliating for them, I don't want to be seen to be in this for the money, even though it would be wonderful if I could make a living doing it. But I'm sure the moment I ask somebody for a dollar, Philip Class would hear about it, and that would be it forever. I don't want to give him that. And I thought to myself, I don't like the way I'm thinking here, but what you say makes sense. And I realize in 35 years of doing this work, I have followed that exact same path. Um, obviously, I, I like being paid when I speak or write, but with person to person, it's another story, and that is the way I was brought up in part. We're all here to be here for each other to some degree, and are not some goofy idealist. I live in the real world, but for me, people come first, and that is something that was only reinforced working with him. His legacy is big, and it will only grow larger as the years pass. I'm convinced of that. Well, thank you so much. We have the article coming out in the magazine, and then you're also going to be at the UFO Congress in late yeah. February. People can already go register uh, for that. So thank you so much for your contributions to the magazine and the Congress and to the radio show. This was a wonderful insight into uh, the life of an important person. Well, Alejandro, um, it was a privilege to do it. Um, I always like doing your show because it's like sitting down with a good friend <laughs> in your living room because we are good friends. And I'm really excited about uh, the Congress in, in February. And for anybody that's not aware of it, go to the Open Minds website. And the International UFO Congress is coming up. It will be four days with more than 20 speakers. What did you draw last year, 1,500 or 1,000 people? I mean, it was a phenomenal yeah, success. a lot of people. If you can get there, do. And if you do, find Alejandro and I and say hi. All right. Thank you so much. We are out of time. Um, but like Peter said, you could go to ufocongress.com and you can uh, register for the conference. We're going to have a lot of great speakers, including Peter. So check it out openminds.tv. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.